You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is actor and writer Finn Whitrock. Finn is an actor who I've admired for a long time. He was in the class ahead of me at Juilliard, and we did some outreach work there together actually with both of our future spouses, my husband Frankie and his now wife Sarah, who was in the dance division at Juilliard. We all did an outreach trip to New Orleans years ago. Finn has done a really wide variety of acting work in his career, and I was excited to get his perspective for the podcast. He's based in LA, so this was recorded over FaceTime. I hope you enjoy the 129th episode of The Compass. been a thing that uh, has kept me able to feel creative in, in, in times when acting is not giving me the love that I want it to be mm-hmm. when uh, you know because um, as an actor there are so many people that have to say yes to you and there are so much uh, there, there's such an infrastructure that has to kind of open up for you to be able to do your art uh, and writing and uh, Writing and pl- writing plays, writing poems, writing screenplays has been a thing that I've been able to kind of maintain some kind of my own creativity without having to rely on other people, you know. Yeah. Although to make a movie happen, to make a play happen, you still need to have other people come around, but you can still kind of main- keep the uh, keep the spark going inside yourself. Yeah, the initial action you can do on your own. Yes, exactly. And it's also been, you know, it's been important to, like, have a home that feels safe and uh, good and um, something that also feeds your creativity, you know? Like, going out to a a new crazy restaurant or going to see great films with someone that you love. I mean, that's a really, uh, it is an important thing, you know? And and I, I think I without a kind of long-term relationship, I might feel very, I, I have a tendency to be very isolated and alone. And so that's a thing that's always kind of kept me yeah. stable, you know? Yeah, for sure. And now you have Zeke, so. But now I have Zeke. You're all set. <laughs> Zeke, it's really true. I mean, having a dog really does, it. it's good, first of all, because it makes you think about something outside yourself. Yeah. And also, they just always love you it doesn't matter what you do or what kind of bastard you've been all day i mean they'll always greet you with the same enthusiasm it changes your life really it really does now like we like the other night we were at some fancy award show thing and i i had i dropped him off at my mom's house because we were going to be away for so long and we came home and it, it was so quiet in the house and, uh, it's just the two of us here what what are we going to do? There's no one barking or running around. It's so lonely. Yeah. Uh, no, it really, it really is they do true. Add, they really do add an incredible life to your, to your house. Yeah, and to have something that no matter what, like they don't care about whatever existential path you're going down. Or they need to be fed. No. They need to be walked. Yeah. 
and that's good. And you know, and that's the thing. I think at first people are like, "Oh God, can I, can I deal with that? Can I handle the walking and the p- petting?" And but that becomes that becomes the joy, you know. <laughs> I was like, gonna say oh, it's God. the petting. I gotta go home. The petting Guys, is definitely home. one step <laughs> too far. Very good. So, what sort of writing is really intriguing you these days? What form? What form does that take that you find really therapeutic? Well, therapeutic and and uh, like productive are two different things. Either. I, uh, yeah. I, well, I, I have been writing screenplays. I have. Um, there's a movie I I wrote with a friend called The Submarine Kid, which we filmed a few years ago. That's with, right, uh, with Dylan, sh- right? Shoestring budget. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of friends. We kind of pulled all the uh, all the friendships we could to help us out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I have this horror movie that I've written that is getting a bit of traction, I think. But I wouldn't say that's therapeutic per se. I mean, that's like now becoming a part of the career. Uh, and it is, it is fun and exciting, but it's also work, you know? Right. Um, to me, like the thing that's always been, the, the writing thing that's been the therapeutic part is is poetry. I, I, if I, I think that in some other life where people actually made money off of being poets, <laughs> I could, I do that very happily and never do anything else. But uh, that's that's still the kind of uh, part of my. That's something that's kept me, uh, kept some part of my some part of, of my brain alive for since like really since before Juilliard. I was like kind of writing pretty actively and now that I'm writing like more like more practical things uh-huh. I do that less but I but I try to kind of keep it in practice in some degree so what does the dark side look like for you most often like when I when I say that what does it mean for you as a, in your artistic life um you know it's it's cha- it changes I mean I've been lucky in a lot of ways I I I I've been able to work pretty consistently, but like when I was first starting out, it was just just the the, the complete shock of rejection, which like you know I mean coming out of Juilliard, you, 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 they kind of make it feel like the world is going to open up to you and be a wonderful open door and, and <laughs> red carpets and. Uh, great directors everywhere you go. You know, I, right. I felt at least our, our class. I'm sure it's still the same. You feel like you're on top of the universe when actually you're you're <laughs> you're just beginning to be at the bottom of a large, very large pile that you like crawl up for the rest of your life. <laughs> I mean that in the best way. Uh, well, it's such a like, small. So you're coming out of such a initial, small pool. Yes. Yeah. And you're, but there is a build-up to it, you know, like, you're, like, the end of your fourth year, you're just, like, uh, oh, man, the world's going to open to me in some huge way. And then when it doesn't, I think it can be a real, uh, it can be a real ego hit. And I think a lot of people, myself included, like, really were shocked by it. I was lucky because I took this year off between high school and college, and I, I actually turned Juilliard down weird like with I have some 18 year old uh hubrist and I <laughs> and I tried to audition in LA and I like got some a couple like um guest stars on ER and stuff and I but I also 
worked at a frozen yogurt place and I uh, did a couple other random day jobs and kind of learned what it was not to work and to be rejected. So when Juilliard happened, I at least had some kind of, you know, scar tissue there that I could uh, fall back on that prepared me a bit for the, the real hard rejection of like, even like, I, I, remember, I remember like being like for something that now I would never, like some CW thing that I was like, it was like nine, it was like this recurring part of 90210 that I was, <laughs> I was thinking I was going to get and I would like, couldn't pay my rent and I had, I, I, I had, maybe I was still working waiting tables and I uh, was just like dying for this part. I, they flew me out to LA for a screen test and during a blizzard I remember this and then they flew me back and I, I literally when I, when I got into the hotel in LA I didn't have enough money I didn't have a credit card first of all and I didn't have enough money like in my bank account for the hotel to allow me to stay there because you know you need right. like a $300 just in case credit card, you need like a $300 or like the limit, like checking account number, oh god, uh, amount, and I didn't even have that, so I had to like, I don't know, my mom, I, I, I begged, borrowed, and stole to like, so I think my mom and my dad came in and they put a credit card down for me. Although like my mom didn't have any money either. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the point is, uh, I didn't get that job, and I was like, just dying about it, and, uh, and then I worked like six more months, kind of just waiting tables and doing the thing. And I know that sounds like silly. It's like, whatever. I mean, I complain about that to, or I talk about that to like friends who are doing it now. And it's like, they're like, well, you worked six months waiting tables, like go fuck yourself. <laughs> but um, that was the initial darkness was like right, okay. thinking it was going thinking things were going to go a certain way. And then just being kind of rejected at every turn. Just the, the volume of auditions you have to go on to eventually get yes. that one thing. It really, oh like you said, it's like that shock of rejection. It's the volume. I really think, <laughs> I, and I still, I mean, I still audition and I still think I, I don't get 90% of the jobs that I go in for. And that's a good ratio, you know, like I'm doing well. Right. And like. That is, that's crazy. The structure. There's not many other professions where getting ten percent of the things you try out is success. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and yeah, there, there, yeah, there's. I mean, God knows how many auditions I went on in my, in, in my life, and especially in those early years. Yeah. So what does it what does it feel like now when you're having one of those one of those periods? Well. I've been in a funny place the last like six months. Um, I've had like this string of kind of really interesting artistic independent films that I was uh, offered the lead of that all one by one fell through, uh, mostly financially, which is a huge thing that's happening just in the business right now. It's like it's really hard to make a movie without either studio backing or like Netflix backing or some kind of mm-hmm. big thing. It's hard to make like the medium road films nowadays. And 
this literally happened to me like four times in a row where it was like two weeks away from shooting and then I get a call like, oh, this producer backed out, this financer backed out. Oh, the lead we had had to do something else, so the movie's pushed back for another two years or something. That close to shooting? Yeah, very close to shooting. Wow. It's crazy. And not just, I mean, like, I complain about it, but I mean, you know, there's location scouts and uh, ADs that they've hired and uh, the whole pre-production's been, like, up and working and then it just gets yanked, the rug gets yanked out from under it. Right. And it is a thing, it is a hard thing, it is a thing, I, I, I know everyone's like, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, but there is... The more you like work an independent film, the more you realize that everybody has like a dollar sign next to their name. Literally, like if you are trying to pitch a movie, you have you try to like pitch the financers to this meant this these this is a dream cast, and everybody has a kind of has a dollar has a number next to them, and that's like based on their that's their international. It's like your international cred. Right. Like what you can, what they can sell overseas, which is what, how they sell everything now. Is they sell it to China and everywhere else first, and America's like the last possible place they sell it. And so they can sell your name overseas, which basically means if you've been in a Marvel movie or something of that caliber, then you can get your thing financed. But otherwise, it's really hard, and people even for indies. <sighs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, That's because crazy. no one because no one's taking any risks anymore because it's uh, there's so much out there, you know. Yeah, it's hard to be like, oh, I should have. Why didn't I fuck? It, it is my fault because I could have uh, been. In, I could have done something bigger, you know, to get myself <laughs> to get this movie financed. You know. That's so frustrating, especially like how much prep work I'm sure you already did before oh, yeah. some of these films that just it's like goes to waste. <laughs> yeah. You're like working on something, and uh, I, I I believe the technical term is blue balls. You know, <laughs> you, you <laughs> you're like really ready to go. And you're like creating a character, and you're doing the thing you've trained to do, and then it, and then it just doesn't happen. And like then you're, the script that you've marked up uh, is kind of just <laughs> like in the recycling bin. It's it's crazy. So. Yeah. Have you started finding any way to deal with that frustration after those projects get canceled? <laughs> yeah, it's you... hard. I mean, I try. I try not to take it out just on the on the pub next door. Uh, <laughs> Could it go back to some Carolyn Sirota like energy clearing exercise. Yes, some some good Alexander free my neck. Um, <laughs> I'm lucky to have a park. Griffith Park is really close to me, and I I take long long hikes. And, try to hash out the world by uh, communing with the hills. (laughs) (laughs) That's always a good way to start. Yeah. Um, Little little nature. Yeah. This this is a question I usually ask people, but it's interesting in your case. Uh, How does your family take in your choice to be an artist for your career? Because I know, isn't your dad Um, an actor as well, or he used to be? Yeah. My family has been, uh, always been incredibly supportive of me. I was born, and I have a weird kind of funny upbringing. I, my dad worked at uh, this company called Shakespeare and Company, which was in, in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, and he was an actor but uh, and, and also a voice teacher with Kristen Linklater. 
and one of her like first students in mm. America. And so I kind of grew up like when when I was young, I would go back every summer to this crazy acting company and um, was kind of immersed in it. So it was always part of my life, like Shakespeare and the antics of actors were always kind of around me uh, until I was like, well, it's funny because I would, I would go back to Evanston in Chicago, outside Chicago for like a very kind of normal public school upbringing and then every summer would go to this summer Shakespeare company. So I had to kind of, I was kind of living um, two lives. Uh, and the summer Shakespeare thing was just always a thing that I loved and missed when it was over all year long and couldn't wait to get back there. Um, and so my parents have always been very, very supportive. Uh, um, it's different. I mean, moving into film and television, like, doesn't, there are, there are two worlds, like theater and film are still kind of separate entities, you know, so they don't totally relate to it all, but they're nothing but very supportive. So I'm very lucky in that way. Wait, so you grew up in Chicago or in LA then? I, I, okay, so I was born in Massachusetts. I lived there till I was six. And then my dad was like, we can't, I can't make any enough money for a family of four. Right. Uh, being an actor in this <laughs> summer Shakespeare company, we're going to Chicago. He started working at DePaul and we, uh, DePaul's like college in Chicago. And so we moved to Evanston. And then when I was 12, my mom got, was get, got an offer to get her doctorate, got into the doctorate program at USC uh, as an occupational therapist, which is what she does. She works with okay. babies with autism and stuff. And so we moved here to LA when I was 12. Gotcha. But still, until like at the end of high school, I would go back to the Berkshires every summer and do Shakespeare and do... Uh, run around in the woods of the Berkshires. That's kind of a, a wonderful way to grow up. I'm sorry, so tell me again how old you were when you moved to L.A.? I was, I was 12. 12. I was just going into middle school. So what's it like to live there now as an adult? It's cool, man. I, I, I um, you know, I, my teenage years were here. So basically, so like from 12 till I went to Juilliard, which I was actually 19 when I went. Right. Um, I lived here. And then I was in New York, you know, well, obviously through my 20s until, I mean, uh, some jobs I would come back here for a while, but we really moved, well, it's, it's funny, it's been like <laughs> so bi-coastal, it's like, to try to track it is even right. hard, like, I moved here for a bit, then moved back to New York, and then moved back here, and then I got death of a salesman, and well, I, then I stayed there for a while like literally it's right, like right, right. year to year but the last four years um, basically since I got married uh, we've been pretty steadily here we've been in this apartment actually for the longest time in, in our whole time together that's so nice um, so yeah so it's been it was totally bicoastal for a while but by happenstance just by jobs that were happening and now now it's been here for a while so so yeah, so I moved to LA when I was 12, was there till New York happened, um, the end of my teenage years, and then, yeah, bam, wham, bam. Do you feel like the, uh, the two cities affect you differently 
as a creative mm-hmm. person? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying like I'm an old man now, but <laughs> be, be, it is funny how L.A., it was like I hated LA at first. I was so gung ho about living in New York and being a New York actor in LA. And New York did treat me well after some initial, uh, yeah, like I say, rejections. It was when I went back there and I like, started doing theater, getting theater jobs. It really was amazing. But I do find, for my own, for how crazy this business is and how up in the air it is, I do find a sense of solace coming back home to L.A. Because it, it, for me, it's not like, I think when most people come here, they have, you know, it's a crazy new place, and there's all, the, there's the business, and there's mm-hmm. this, like at Beverly Hills, and the whole, that whole side of it. But I knew a different side of it. Like, I knew it was, it was home. You know, it was where I learned to drive. It was where right. I, uh, I went to this arts high school, um, you know, in Cal State LA, it's downtown LA, and my so it was an, it was a county school, so kids lived all over LA County, which is enormous. Like LA County is the size of many small countries, you know. So I would, and I was one of the first of my friends to drive, so I would drive people home. I had a friend who lived in Pomona. I had a friend who lived in Malibu. I had like Burbank, Pasadena. Like, if that means anything to anyone listening, like it's a those are the places are very far away from each other um and castaic is one girl lived in castaic which is i know it probably means nothing to you but it's like literally from this from like manhattan it's probably like halfway through new jersey like to pennsylvania <laughs> like it's so fucking far and so i like but 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 when i was a high schooler like that was freedom like driving right. someone home Nowadays, I'd be like, fuck no, I'm not trying to <laughs> But back then, it was like, yes. Yeah, it's an adventure. Two hours there and back. It's an adventure. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what L.A. was to me. It was like this great, crazy, wild adventure. Um, and so that's that's the kind of sense memory I have of it when I come back to it, is that, you know, that sense of like anything could happen. Mm, that's great. That's a great way to, yeah. a great way to be able to approach it. Yeah. It's different, I think. You know, it's different than yeah. most people's because it's a terrible place to visit. Like it's a horrible, <laughs> it's a horrible tourist place. Like New York is. I w- I will I love to go to New York for five days and just see plays and see museums and like do all the great stuff. L.A. is not good. Like, it's not a good place to just show up and see what happens. Yeah. You know. You'll I feel like I've, I've never been there longer than like five days. So I feel like I, I yeah. never get a good grip of it. It's terrible five days. <laughs> you need much longer. Are, is there anything uh, that you've learned about auditioning over the years that you feel like mm-hmm. is serving you well now? Like any way that you approach it differently that uh, you feel gives you back some of your power in that, that type of situation? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I can't, I come, I, I come back to this thing that Phil Seymour Hoffman said, which is just like, always be the best actor you you can possibly be, like, which is hard, like, when you're doing, because most often when you're auditioning, you know that you're not right for this, or you, right. there are so many things against you, you know, there's a 
there's a bigger actor probably that's going out for it, or mm-hmm. maybe you're not the right size or shape or right, age or, or, or the writing isn't whatever. that, that or great anyway. <laughs> or, or whatever. You know, there are so many things. But I remember Phil saying this thing of like, just be the best actor you could possibly be in that one moment, and then forget about it. Because he's like, the, it's the it's the being the best actor you can be in the room that is the thing that um, that carries on, that people talk about. And that's what this business is. is like It's about people talking about you. Hmm. It's about, it's all things that, it's all word of mouth. It's all chatting. You know, it's all, hmm. <laughs> it's all reputation, you know? And so to create the best reputation every single time you go into a room does add up, even if you don't get that job. And you should, I, I want to tell kid, like younger people, like, really, you should plan on not getting that job, like that you go in for. You should walk out of that room, and you should be like, I did the best audition I could possibly do. I did all the work I could do. I left, I bled, I left my blood on the stage there, but that's it. It's over. That's it. I don't need it any more than that. Hmm. You know, and I think that's the way that you will survive. That's, like, I mean, it's easier said than done, it, but it's a great advice. It's <laughs> way easier said than done, and I wish I could do it all the time because I definitely don't. I definitely take it with me lots of... Of course, you, there are some parts that you want and die for and really want and can't stop thinking about, but right. if you can try to have that practice of just like working your ass off beforehand, doing it, and just leaving it there, <laughs> I, really, I really think that's the way to have longevity <laughs> yeah and that's good because then you get to really practice your art and not have it be you're not trying to please someone you're not trying to do the right thing you're just like i'm going to approach this part as if i have it already yeah and then when i don't get it fuck it i don't need it no <laughs> you know? that yeah it's just i guess the yeah. hard the hard part at least for me is like knowing like you said earlier like knowing that there's so many people who have to say yes for you to be able to get to do the thing totally but not trying to please those people you know because then that's beside the point because pleasing people when people sense that you're trying to please them it's not sexy yeah (laughs) (laughs) like people are more interested in someone who comes into the room with their own agenda and their own who 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 comes in and is like, this is my room for these, for these two minutes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Again, easier said than done, of course. But, <laughs> uh, that is the thing that's interesting, you know? Totally. Um, do you have any mentors who've been important to you in your artistic career? You know, I had, <laughs> it's funny. I just watched this great, Thing, the PBS Masters thing about Mike Nichols and I had this you know I, in 2012 I had this really lucky thing where I got cast and done it for salesman on Broadway and Philip Hoffman and Mike Nichols both became mentors to me in a, in a in very different ways Mike was kind of like this grandpa figure and Phil was like this guy that I just revered and just kind of watched like a hawk and just sort of followed and imitated and like it was just like hung on his every word hmm. and they were and after it was done they did like we did stay in touch and Mike was really 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 kind to me 
Um, and then they were both dead in like a year. Like it was like oh Phil died and then Mike died like 11 months later or something. So I was kind of, I kind of floundered. Like I thought this, this was like, oh my God, I have these two amazing men who are going to like show me the way. And then they were kind of gone very quickly. And it was, uh, it really threw me for a loop. Um, so tr- trying to find someone of that caliber is hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still looking. Yeah, you had some lucky, <laughs> lucky introductions lucky the there. Yes, a great. I had a great spurt of awesome mentorship. Um, but they do can kind of continue to inspire me as I kind of watch their work and uh, re-listen to them. And I found this old note that Mike wrote me on the opening night where it was like. Just the most beautiful thing in the world to me. Um, and they didn't. I mean, they were mentors for a time. Like, they did inspire me and um, really changed, I think, kind of changed the actor I was within. It's hard to kind of articulate that, but hmm. uh, I became more detailed, I think. I became more, like, really trying to narrow it down to just the work, not all the other all the other stuff around it, you know? Yeah. Um, it seems like you've gotten the chance to work with some collaborators, like on a consistent basis, mm-hmm. like with um, Sam Gold with some of the shows you've done. Oh, yeah. And uh, Ryan Murphy with some of the TV shows you've done. What has that relationship been like? How, do, how yeah. does it kind of change the way you get to work as an actor? Yeah, I have. You're right. I I've been very blessed by that. Like to have a few people that have kind of continued to kind of come back to me for different things, um, and that is that is the best. Like it really is to be able because there's so much. I think there's so much when you first go into a project that you don't know anyone. There's so much ice to break. You know, there's so yeah. much of the work is about like reading the other person like how do you work how do i work do we do i what do i like you do you like me (laughs) all that you know there's a lot of (laughs) time and energy that's like spent on that at the beginning and and once you can do a second project with someone you that's all just cut through and you just and you you, you've already got you've already kind of created the second language you know the the this the double speak the thing like the mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't even have to talk that much you know you kind of just get each other and and that's the that's what it really starts to get interesting you know when like you can you can just dive right into the red meat right like immediately you know and yeah you know the the ways they like to work and yeah and they know what you like and they you know I think the rest directors kind of are working their way around the actor in a way you know mm. and so that's yeah, interesting, that's really interesting because I feel like both those directors have such a strong style um, they do, they definitely do I mean, <laughs> yes but that's good to hear that <laughs> they, mean, they're Ryan, also interested Ryan in the actor an amazingly different like <laughs> wonderful comparisons to make uh, <laughs> I'm sure they would both uh, be flattered by it uh <laughs> uh, uh, but Sam does like Sam especially is like someone who 
some actors, I think he he talks to a lot and you know really gets in there because he knows that that's what he wants. And some actors, he kind of leaves alone a little bit. Hmm. Um, and he will kind of match you. He will kind of match whatever you bring to him. I remember him once him saying to Sally Field because Sally was there was one moment. This isn't speaking off the record. Like there was one moment where in rehearsal for Glass Menagerie that she was pushing back a little bit. I think she was kind of just testing his vision because the vision was a bit out there for Glass Menagerie. It was like we had no set. We had a chair and a big, huge, empty stage. Like he took the back wall away. Like it was just the empty uh, Velasco Theater. And I just remember at the beginning of rehearsal her kind of like just needling him a little. Not needling, just like questioning every little choice why that why this why that and he kind of very patiently went through all of her questions and he said i am the most patient director that you will ever meet but like <laughs> i will i will sit here and do this with you as long as you need me to to kind of basically without, without saying it like to get you to believe in what i'm doing like to <laughs> get <laughs> to like get you on board he's like i will he wouldn't, he's not like he would waver, he wouldn't change his vision, but he will explain every, or he will, he will go to bat with you on every question you have, very kind of methodically and patiently, and like, just, just do it, just like, let's, let's go there. <laughs> and then there was like Joe Mantella, who like, didn't really have that many questions at all, it just kind of went, it was like, I get it, I do it, let's do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. We don't not have to talk about this if you don't want to, but how do you and Sarah, your wife, deal with being in a relationship with two creatives? <laughs> how do we? Um, <laughs> that's the thing that's how, how do you uh, help each other deal yeah. with everything that comes with that? <laughs> it's a thing that's an ongoing thing. You know, it's never a thing that's totally figured out. I think we are lucky in that we're not doing the same thing like it's mm-hmm. uh, I think having an actress wife would be even harder than having hey. a... <laughs> yeah you guys have figured out figured out <laughs> really um, we, you know we've kind of figured out what, what we what each of us need and like she uh, you know knows when I need some space on my own you know like I think a lot of our learning curve was kind of like me te- like telling her that like when I need alone time it's not that I don't want to be with you it's just that I need some alone time right now. Like, I, this is right. how I, this is what I need. Uh, and then when she'd be like, well, I need you to be here right now because I have to work on this thing. So you have to be here. So, you know, it's a... Uh, Communication <laughs> is what yeah. you're saying. Communicate. Uh, and compromise. And like, and it is a negotiation. It's negotiation, you know. A lot of marriage is negotiation. Do you guys... I'll give you this, you give me that. And that's like, <laughs> you know, that's okay. Like, it should be. It, not that it's all transactional. It's just like, you know, you uh, you give and you get, and it evens out in the end. You know. Yeah. Do you guys ever get to collaborate on any projects? Well, we've just actually in in name, actually legally now have started a production company. I have this horror movie that I've written, horror romance. I like to call it. <laughs> um, that our company is a part of producing oh cool so she's been very collaborative especially Sarah is an incredible casting director I think if casting wasn't such a crazy hard profession she would be like a genius casting director I can see so that so she's been re- yeah she's like she knows everything that's happening and knows everybody somehow 
<laughs> I don't know how. I don't know what she does in there. Uh, and so she's been incredibly helpful in that way. And then she's got this um, doc series that she's trying to get off the ground. So I've been trying to help her a little bit, um, like a bit on the kind of connection side with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we find ways to overlap. And, you know, but there's also like, you know, there's also like I need my space right now to do my thing. You know, right. it's like both. No, both of course. Have to exist simultaneously. You know? That's awesome. Yeah. Um, are there any lessons you've learned over the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you want to share with me? Oh. It could be something uh, uh, small or big, whatever you think. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> well, I kind of, I think one thing I have really thought about is it's the, it relates to the thing I was saying before about auditioning, mm-hmm. which is that the part you don't get might be the best thing you ever did. Like, for instance, I, okay, I, I auditioned for this, for Tony Kushner in The Intelligent Homosexual. Right. And I didn't get it. And then, and I was like despondent about it. And then, like a year later, I got a call about this play called The Illusion Mm -hmm. at the Signature. And it was like, Tony Kushner kind of wants to see you for this. Could you come and audition? I flew out from LA to it, like totally on my own dime. Had no, I I slept on friends' couches, the whole thing. And I got that. And then that led to like Nichols Custom and Death of a Salesman. And that led to so many other things. But that was because I went in at one time and got it and like did an audition and thought it was shitty and, (laughs) uh, and didn't get it. And then like, didn't work for a while and then it came back around you know that like sometimes the thing that like I guess I guess the I guess the point is never to take an opportunity for granted that Mm -hmm. like you never know who's in that room you know yeah you really don't and it could be the assistant working there like that's happened before too like I was the assistant of what's his name I saw you do that thing do you want to do this other thing like that's what I'm saying like those that goes far you know so yeah. don't don't just don't discount something especially if you'd like if you think it's oh this stupid part that i'm never going to get like still you never know what it could lead to um is that is that, is that any good yeah that's great yeah. <laughs> uh there are two questions that i usually ask at the end but is there anything that i didn't touch on that you were really looking forward to talking about um Oh, and we covered good. covered a lot of different things. Yeah, we did. We did. Oh, that's good. You got you got me talking. I don't usually open up this much. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's a perfect platform for it. Um, yeah, really. So the the next question is like when you are in a place where you're feeling really down or uninspired, like yeah. are there any concrete things that you reach for again and again, like a book that you reread or music you listen to or somewhere you go, something like that. It's funny, I. <sighs> You know what's weird is like I listen to sad stuff and it makes me feel better. I listen <laughs> like if I if I just put on Elliot Smith, I'm immediately happier. Like when I'm in my saddest place, which is the most depressing music imaginable, but he he's maybe my he's maybe my favorite he's maybe my favorite artist. He I just love Elliot Smith. That's the point. Uh, <laughs> maybe it just and, like crystallizes that feeling in some way and you're able to move on. 
It does, and he is some somehow in that in that quiet, sad music. I find such joy. There's like this weird sense of joy, uh, and. Really, Elliot Smith, that's my answer. All right, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last thing is, uh, have you seen anything recently that you want to recommend of any art form? Mm. God, I wish I was in New York. I feel like there's so many great things there to see. But um, I love the movie The Favorite. Um, I love the movie Vice. Oh, yeah. There was this, what's there was this really great documentary series watching about snowboarding, which sounds bizarre, but it was amazing. <laughs> Think of it and send it to you. Um, I'm sure there's more. It's hard. I try to inundate myself with so many things, and I can't like remember any of the good things. Oh, we didn't even get to talk about um, If Beale Street Could Talk. I loved it. Oh, yeah. I think, I think I'm going to have Tiana on soon. Oh, good. But She's amazing. That was so gorgeous. Thank you. Oh, my God. Uh, I know it's a, it's a, Beale Street is an incredibly filmed thing and it, and like, it's just, it was such a cool, I was only on it for one day, but it was like this kind of spiritual experience that like Barry Jenkins is like this guru, amazing person. Um, so passionate and full of energy. And I got to do the scene with Regina King and she's now getting so many, I was, I mean, knock on wood, like. Yeah. I think an Oscar is in her future. She's incredible. Um, she's getting so many things. And it's cool. I, I've had this cool thing this year where, despite the fact that these six months have been like all these movies that fell through, uh, things that I've done like a year ago are now like, coming to fruition. Like this, this show, The Assassination of Gianni Versace, this Versace show, mm-hmm. which I've been nominated for a couple things. That's like coming, coming at the same time as Beale Street now. So like the other, like, the other day I was at the Golden Gloves or whatever and it was like the Beale Street table and the Versace table like next door so I got to like be in both worlds you know yeah and how that, fun that's cool and like you kind of forget when you're hustling and trying to get the things that like oh yeah I did that thing and now it's yeah because when did you come when did you life. actually shoot those two projects a, literally a year a year and a half ago yeah. I shot Versace and then like last a year ago last October I shot Beale Street and so you know they'd have their gestational period and now they like come to the world and and then you kind of bear the, f- the fruits of that um, so th- that's cool and like then it makes you feel like right we, things are happening it's just <laughs> I think that's the lesson is like things are happening it's just it's gonna take longer you have to have more patience than you ever thought you would you know? yeah yeah like they will happen they just like the patience is even more intense than you thought it would be yeah, it's so it's yeah. so different with film and TV than with theater. Because yeah. theater, like you're involved, yes, it's, it's intimately with every. Like yes. once you start rehearsals, you're involved every day physically. Yeah. You're involved whenever someone's seeing it, and then to shoot one day on this film a year and a half ago, I know. And just now, people are seeing it. That's so bizarre. Yeah. And you and, and in theater, you get immediate feedback. You know, the audience is there, it's responding, you feel how the show is going, um, for better or for worse. Yeah. You know, but you do, a, you do a movie or you do TV, and movies especially, because that can take, I've done a movie like that took two and a half years to come out, and you've forgotten what you did by the time it comes out. 
And so right. that can either be like a really pleasant surprise, which hopefully it will be, or it can be like, oh, <laughs> fuck, what was I doing? Well, and especially since the director and editor might have chosen things that you wouldn't have chosen or you wouldn't think yeah, that well, they did. I guess that's the big difference, really, <laughs> is that, like, you're... In theater, although the director has, has created things beforehand, you're still... You're there every moment of decision-making. And you're really... You're, you're in someone else's hands in movies, you know? You're like, that's why it's like, that's why actors go crazy. I think that's why actors get become neurotic, like, about choosing their directors and being like, who's directing it? Because, like, hmm. they have, they can, they can make or break your performance, so, you know? The editing is everything. Right. Um, and, and it can, it can make a perform, it can make a good performance great, or it can make, a great performance, uh, mediocre, you know, <laughs> or just or not exist at all, you know. Like you're so at the mercy of other of other people. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a, ta- a tangent, basically, because I want to recommend if Beale Street can talk. <laughs> yes, please. Me too. I do too. Watch, go watch it. It's um, really good. Well, great, Finn. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of the Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the Compass Podcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.